Welcome to the Come Follow Me Weekly Wisdom Podcast. My goal is to deepen your faith in and love for Jesus Christ and his gospel. You can best support these podcasts by purchasing one of my books, The Divine Nature and His Voice, The Teachings of the Old and New Testament. These books can be purchased on Amazon or by visiting my website, www.unfoldingthescriptures.com. Thank you. First off, today I want to thank everyone for listening. I'm grateful for your patience as I'm trying to figure out how to best do the audio. The technical aspects of this is very new to me. Though I've been teaching for a long time, the realm of podcasting is a new world for me and I'm still experimenting with things. I hope that I will be able to further fine-tune the process and perfect the audio. Things have been busy for me. I'm in the process of studying for medical boards. We're in the process of moving. I'm doing half marathon training and I have a delightful nine-month-old little baby who occupies the majority of my attention and time. So with all of that, it's difficult even to squeeze in the 30 to 40 minutes of prep time for a lesson. I've been trying to pay attention to some of the statistics that are provided. It looks like the summaries are a little more popular than my ramblings. So if that continues to be true, I may hold back on some of the ramblings and actually give some prep time to the summaries. For now, the summaries are just me going off and going through the scriptures and giving some quick commentary through those, whereas the in-depth analysis, I usually will prepare 30 to 40 minutes uh, to give something that's more in-depth. Honestly, those are more meaningful to me, so I won't be dropping those anytime soon, but I have considered doing a lot of different other things, and so if the summaries really are the things that are most useful to people, I can give those a little bit more attention. And perhaps instead of doing a week-to-week uh, deep dive into one aspect of the lesson, I can do the thing that is more meaningful to me, which is just do a very specific deep dive into a particular principle of the gospel. As you can tell, my tendency is to do that anyways. As I'm going through a particular section of the scriptures, I usually will try and highlight some of the more most powerful principles that are speaking from those selections that are given to us and try to dive into those. But even with the hour that is given in a typical lesson, I still feel off times we're never getting down deep into the core. So something that I've really wanted to do in my own, that's useful for my own personal study would be to take a topic like faith and I could do you know, one week at a time, keep going into faith and have something along the lines of six to eight hours reviewing the most relevant scriptures of faith and the principles of faith. So I've considered doing something like that. I do hope to integrate a question and answer at some point. I may not be able to do that every week, but maybe once a month I can do something on along the lines of a question and answer. I do have an email if you would like to send any ideas or any questions to. That email will be dmood 5k at gmail.com dmood5k at gmail.com feel free to send me whatever you want there as long as it's not just angry hate mail I'll review that if there's any comments or advice I'll try to go through that with any spare time that I have the last thing that I consider doing is maybe again once a month I could do something along the lines of a doctrinal defense that may be covered in a question and answer anyway. Uh, it's quite relevant, I think, in today's day and age. There is 
a lot of faith crisis in the world in general. Uh, there's definitely a greater expansion that we're encountering in the United States, and our state of Utah is not uh, immune to that faith crisis. And I think a doctrinal defense would be a helpful tool because there's a lot of people that have genuine questions and finding ways to give competent and good answers to the difficult questions, I think has some great utility for individuals. So those are some ideas. Again, feel free to send an email at dmood5k at gmail.com. And as I said, this is a growing process for me. And hopefully over the next three to six months that I'll be able to make this better. Um, once I move, I won't be doing these in a room where there is a baby sleeping next door, so I might actually be able to speak a little bit louder and start using something like voice inflection at some point, and that's pretty exciting to me. Instead of just this quiet, monotone voice that is designed to not wake up a baby. To begin for today, the question worth considering is, what spiritual experiences have you had? This is a good exercise it's difficult at times. Even, you know, when I go through this process myself, I think, well, I'm, I'm getting quite old. A lot of the really potent ones that I had earlier in life that really changed me in a significant way were a long time ago. And so I look at many of the more recent spiritual experiences, and though they are meaningful, they're not as grandiose. But it's always good to try to focus on the very core of an experience. It's a common thing that is used in a lot of the psychological literature is experience because that tends to be the most real thing you have. And if not real, it's the, the, the closest thing that you have. You know, suffering. Can you describe whatever qualities are running through you at any given moment? Whether it's suffering or joy, that's why emotions get a lot of attention because you can recognize an emotion, but emotions themselves are quite difficult. It's, I, I, when I get a student with me, sometimes I'll give them that great task and say, hey, I want you to try and write down all the emotions that you can think of. And you'll find that it's pretty difficult because you'll say, well, is this actually a real emotion or is this just me describing anger in a different way? So experience is quite a difficult thing, but it's very useful for yourself as you're trying to navigate through your life in an honest way, it's the, it's the closest thing that you have. Just like the five senses that we have, you can touch something and describe it, and that's how you develop a sense of reality around you. So too do we have this very, though it's somewhat invisible, this internal world. And at that most basic ground level is where we're going to be experiencing things. And it's in that domain that you will have a spiritual experience. And, and that's a good process as well. You can write down all the experiences that you have, and then you say, well, which ones are actually spiritual as opposed to just a normal experience? It really gets your mind going, and it can really help you as you're trying to define revelation and understand revelation in your own life. So in combination with the question, what spiritual experiences have you had? It's, it's also helpful to give that some degree of meaning, just like in Aesop's fables, you know, when a standard person gets up and bears a testimony, hopefully, if they haven't forgotten and they weren't just rambling, there may be some sort of grand conclusion behind that. 
And it's these conclusions that are very, very significant. What can you witness about God? What can you witness about God's hand? What can you witness about your own experiences? This is what testimony is. And, and these testimonies are deeply linked with conclusions that you have drawn. As you begin to identify the conclusions that you draw based off of the fundamental experiences, that's helpful for us to spread the word, to witness that to other people as they're trying to sort out their life because no one has a complete picture. We all are basically a mess on this planet being fallen man. And we need that nourishment. We need that counsel and advice that comes from the collective, the communal, the congregation, as it were. Another reason why I ask these questions about the spiritual experiences that you've had and the specific testimonies, the specific conclusions, the specific things that you have found to be true in your life, because there is a very grand prophecy that is spoken of in the Old Testament that gets reiterated in every book of Scripture that's for example, found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. I think the next podcast will talk in more depth about what the covenants of the Lord are and in that lesson, then, we'll give focus to that last sentence found in Jeremiah, that I will be their God and they will be my people, which is, I think, one of the most condensed descriptions of the covenants of God. But in the process of I will be their God, or for us, making God our God, a significant part of that is described as having law written on your hearts. So the aforementioned questions could probably better be asked as what has God written upon your heart? How did he write that on your heart? And this is one of the most core aspects of testimony because when someone is testifying, ideally what they're doing is they're expressing the things that God has written upon their hearts. And it's also helpful as they are also conveying that process of how God wrote that material, wrote that truth upon their hearts. You also have the whole idea of Moses in the Old Testament receiving the Ten Commandments, and Moses, as he had the Ten Commandments, God, the finger of God, wrote upon the tables of stone. And in like manner, just as God gave specific commandments through Moses, God will give you things and he will write them upon your heart. And that's very powerful language, especially when you think of it in the context of that Mosaic lesson. What has God written upon your heart in like manner? And if it's nothing, then this is a call for you to seek after God, to seek for God and that experience, to have things written upon your heart. And if God has written things upon your heart, then I suppose the call is, to continue to receive God's word, continue to have things written upon your heart. If you recall in the, uh, the previous podcast when we talked about the iron rod being the word of God, that that can be interpreted as and, and should be first and foremost interpreted 
as the Holy Scriptures and the words of the prophets. However, I also wanted to give some attention to the idea of your own specific world, your own specific life, what has God commanded you specifically? Of the hundreds and perhaps thousands of specific commandments that you could parse out of the scriptures, which ones is God calling you to do at this moment? Those are things that God is speaking more directly, and this is part of that process as I've been able to see in my life as of how God will write things upon your heart. You find those specific commandments that come from God and you follow them. And as you do that, you will have that testimony written upon your heart. For example, we learn from Nephi in 1 Nephi chapter 17, verse 3, a scripture that is often omitted and just passed over because it doesn't have as much of the bravado that you'll find in 1 Nephi 3, 7. However, it conveys the same principle, just at a different stage in Nephi's life. The verse reads, And thus we see that the commandments of God must be fulfilled. And if it so be that the children of men keep the commandments of God, he doth nourish them and strengthen them and provide means whereby they can accomplish the thing which he has commanded them. Wherefore, he did provide means for us while we did sojourn in the wilderness. You can recognize some of the familiar words that he earlier expressed in 1 Nephi 3.7 about God providing means to accomplish the commandments. Here it is, Nephi, towards the conclusion of their journey, or at least a, a conclusion of a great part of their journey. He takes a moment to pause and say, we've made it this far. Look at where I am now. How did I get here? I got here because God truly did keep his part. God truly did provide means for me specifically to accomplish the commandments which were given to me. So in answering that question of how did God write it upon your heart, one of the things that's helpful for you to identify those things is to look at the journey that you have completed and perhaps just take a moment and say, look at where I am right now. Because basically that's where Nephi is doing. He's saying, look at where I am right now. I'm not in Jerusalem anymore. I'm no longer in that little spot by the Red Sea. I'm no longer in Laban's hands. Where am I right now? And how did I get here? As you contemplate the paths that you have taken, as you've contemplated the journey that you have undergone, in many ways, you'll begin to see the hand of the Lord. You'll begin to see many interventions from God where he will teach you truths and you'll see those ways in which you have come into contact with truth. In 1 Nephi 17 verse 13 is one of my favorite verses in the book of 1 Nephi. I would say it might be a little bit of a back and forth between that found in 1 Nephi, was it 3 or 4, where Nephi says, we will not go down until we have accomplished that thing. That, that phrase in that situation is one of my favorites. So it's in a battle with 1 Nephi 17.13 for my personal favorite in the book of 1 Nephi. This verse reads, And I, God, will also be your light in the wilderness, and I will prepare the way before you, if it so be that ye shall keep my commandments. Wherefore, inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, 
ye shall be led towards the promised land, and ye shall know that it is by me that ye are led. So as we break that down, we see God expressing himself to be a light in the wilderness. The wilderness is our life. The wilderness is chaos. It's the journey ahead of us. It's the unknown. God is a light in the unknown. And we have that great faith as we undergo new tasks, that God is out there, that God acts as some internal light. It seems difficult to perceive, but yet there still is that light there in all of the stages of our lives, especially in those novel situations. We can sense that God is a light that gives us some source of direction as we wander through the wilderness of mortality. I will prepare the way before you. When I read that, it suggests that God has a plan for us. God has prepared a particular path for you. Now, in Doctrine and Covenants, there's a really significant verse that says regarding missionary work that it doesn't matter if you go by boat or by foot or by carriage so long as you fulfill your purpose. So there's a lot of things in between in the prepared way of your life that truly do not matter. It mattereth not unto me. If you take your journey by any one of those routes, so long as you, so long as you fulfill your mission. So God has prepared a way for you. That doesn't mean that everything is so specific. There may be a lot of details that are insignificant, but there definitely are details along your path in your life that truly have been prepared and God is there. And if it so be that you keep my commandments, and that's actually more of a conditional thing when it says that I will prepare the way before you and I will be your light if you will keep my commandments. The other is a nice term, that word inasmuch. I mentioned earlier that if you ever see the word if, you really want to put a big circle around that or because, because these are terms that often show some sort of causality and they, they very directly link a principle of the gospel. Similar, you have inasmuch, which seems to be a statement more proportionality. Inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall be led towards the promised land. Now, obviously, the promised land for Nephi is a very specific location, and we can talk about the history of that, but I'm not as so concerned about the history because it's in these chapters that we're reviewing today that we read in 1 Nephi chapter 19, verse 23, I did liken the scriptures unto myself, a really powerful principle, and that's something that we're always trying to do. We're trying to take whatever verses, whatever stories we're hearing, and we're trying to make them relevant. We're trying to see how they're relevant in our own lives and how they can better ourselves. So the whole concept of the promised land, that's true in every person's life. A promised land is the place that we want to get. It's the place that's better than where you are now. When we say the grass is greener on the other side, it's the place where the grass actually is greener and it is on another side. It's, it's a future that beckons us forward, a place, a land flowing with milk and honey, just these descriptions of some more paradisiacal place. And, and that's important to remember because no matter where you're at in life, you need that anchoring hope that, look, this is where you're at right now. And you may be in a wilderness, you may be in a tough spot. I've met a lot of people in quite tough spots. Mortality itself is a tough spot. We're fallen man. We're constantly afflicted by thorns. Um, briars and thorns, I believe, are the spe specific phrases. It also says herbs, which I think is reference to vegetables. 
So, I mean, we have all these terrible things, all sorts of terrible vegetables around us that we have to eat, and that's pretty rough. And so, especially if all you are is eating vegetables, then the idea of milk and honey really does sound good. And you need that hope. You need that hope of a better world, a better place than where you are right now, something to call you forward. Inasmuch as you shall keep my commandments, you shall be led towards the promised land. So that in and of itself, though extremely simple, a very plain and precious truth, I might add, is so critical for every person in their life, especially if you feel like you are wandering in a wilderness, if you feel like you're lost, if you feel like your life is a mess, and you say, I wish I didn't have this life that I have right now. I wish that things could be better. How can I get them to be better? You keep the commandments. And then you say, well, you mean those 10 things that Moses gave me? Yeah, absolutely. Keep those 10. But that's where I bring in that focus from 1 Nephi chapter 8, the idea that God will give you specific commandments. Get on your knees, pray and ask, ponder and wait, and then repeat. Keep doing that over and over and over again. Ask those questions. And I truly believe it. I mean, if you ask God, what do I need to do in my life? You'll get an answer. It's not that hard. You can say, what are all the things I'm doing in my life that are wrong? That's, that's an easier question. Those you'll probably get a lot more content. You'll say, well, I'm wasting a lot of time here. I let my temper get the best of me at times. I let my sloth get the best of me at times. My language isn't always the best. I'm not always the kindest person. All these thoughts came into my mind and then you say, well, God, where do I start? What do I need to do right now? Is there one or two, you know, don't, God's not going to overwhelm you and say, keep all of the commandments and be perfect by tomorrow. You'll have a few things lightened to you. And that's where it says, I will be your light in the wilderness. You pay attention to those few particular things that God will enlighten before you and you keep those things. You keep those things because those are the commandments that God is speaking to you. And in as much as you'll keep those things, you will be led towards a promised land. God will bring you to a place that is better. And the other cool thing in that verse is it gives a secondary promise and it says, and ye shall know that it is by me that ye are led. Just as Nephi makes that confession earlier in 1 Nephi chapter 17, verse 3, where he says, and thus, I, what did he say specifically? He says, wherefore he did provide means for us while we did sojourn. If it so be that the children of men keep the commandments, he doth nourish them and strengthen them and provide means. It's not a question of he will do these things. It, at that point, it is he did do those things. Inasmuch as you keep those commandments and you're led towards that promised land, as your life starts to get better, as you get closer and closer towards the promised land, and especially if you reach the promised land, then you will know that it truly was by God that you were led. That is how God will write those things upon your heart. You keep those commandments, and inasmuch as you keep those commandments, you will begin to have that testimony and knowledge that it is by God and his hand that ye are led. You will have a witness and testimony of God, his reality, his existence, and the way in which he functions and operates in your life. 
in connection with this idea of knowing that you are led by God's hand, one of my favorite verses in the book of Isaiah is Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21. The reason why I like this verse so much is because it's, for me, one of the most real ways in which God has communicated to me. So when I ask the question of what spiritual experiences I have had, this is a verse that speaks and articulates some of the spiritual experiences I have in words that are as good as anything I could muster. So it says in Isaiah 30, 21, And thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it, when ye turn to the right and when ye turn to the left. Prior to that verse, it mentions that the Lord may give us the, or not that the Lord may, I would should probably say that the Lord will give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. We all have our daily bread and we all need water daily and God gives us this daily adversity and affliction, even though despite that, yet not, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner anymore, but thine eyes shall see thy teachers. God is the great teacher. The spirit of God is the great teacher. And and through the something in connection with the bread of adversity and the waters of affliction, God is giving us an education. This is a principle that's taught very well, even in a primary class. We're taught that this life is a test, making God a teacher. But the, the specific is, your eyes shall see thy teachers. So it's this, this awakening, this understanding and vision of, and realization of God and his hand, his reality, that he's there. He's not just in a corner, but he is present in your life. And thine ears will hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it. For me, that is one of the best descriptions of the Holy Spirit and the way that he communicates. He very often communicates in a pragmatic way, a directive way. You know, the most common prayer that people always ask when they're, whether it's a group prayer or when they're praying on their own is, God, please give me the guidance and direction, guidance and direction, guidance and direction. Well, Isaiah chapter 30 verse 21 is a direct response to that. God will give you a very simple, soft directive as if a whisper behind your ears. You may turn to the right and turn to the left looking to see who said that. And it's this subtle phrase that just says, this is the way, walk ye in it. This is the core of personal revelation. These personal revelations are not designed to manifest the grand metaphysical reality and give answer to the mysteries of the kingdom and deep doctrine. The great revelations and, and interactions that we're going to have with God and the spiritual experiences that we have are going to come in, in a context of direction. It'll come in the context of God revealing your path for you. It'll come in the context of God saying, this is the way for you, walk ye in it. And as God does that, what he's doing is he's giving you commandments. And if you'll hold fast to that word of God, that word of God that he's speaking to you by way of commandment, as you follow those things, line upon line, precept upon precept, commandment upon commandment, you will be brought closer and closer and closer to the, tr to the tree of life. So the reason why I'm attending to this idea within these chapters is twofold. One, because of 
the verses found in First Nephi 17 and chapter or chapter 17 and chapter 19. But the other is because of Laman and Lemuel and some of the descriptions that we've had of them throughout the book of First Nephi. And because we've been attending to other ideas, we haven't given, given this principle the attention that it deserves. And this truly is, in my opinion, the, the principle that deserves the most attention. It is the principle of your own personal revelation, your own spiritual experiences, the communication and path that you will walk with God. And the, the general principle is when you're looking at Nephi, what makes Nephi Nephi, what makes him such a powerful individual is that he has had personal experiences with God and he's been able to recognize those and he truly and ultimately believes that God is able to work things within him. The great contrast, of course, being that of Laman and Lemuel. You see, the principles need to be your own or they're worth nothing. And this is important for parents to remember as you're teaching your kids because if you shield them from the world of experience, if you do not allow them to experience adversity or affliction, if you deny them the bread of affliction and the waters of adversity, and I may have switched the uh, descriptions on those, is it the bread of adversity and the waters of affliction? But either way, you know what I'm getting at. If you deny them that, you're going to deny them the essential teachings that they need. And so that, I mean, obviously there's some tact and wisdom in how much is given to them. Again, the great wisdom of Isaiah, line upon line, precept upon precept. But we cannot shield them from these experiences because they need to ultimately become their own. And we need to allow God to be able to have an opportunity to write things upon their heart. At some point, Lehi stays back in his tent while he allows Laman and Lemuel and Nephi and Sam to go off into the wilderness themselves. And that is an essential part of every parent's life as they are going to allow their, their kids the opportunity to make choices, the opportunity to fail, and perhaps learn at some point in the process. But Laman and Lemuel are quite telling in their attitudes and their faith. So in 1 Nephi chapter 3, verse 31, it states, And after the angel had departed, Laman and Lemuel again began to murmur, saying, How is it possible that the Lord will deliver Laban into our hands? Behold, he is a mighty man. He can command fifty, yea, even he can slay fifty, then why not us? So we had learned earlier that Laman and Lemuel did not fully understand the dealings of God, but I'm going to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. These guys just saw an angel. And so I can imagine that even someone with a very basic, rudimentary concept of God, after seeing an angel, should at least have some knowledge that God exists and perhaps some intimation of a faith on the power of God from these very real things that they had experienced. And that whole verse begins, and after the angel had departed, these guys saw an angel. And so they, they cannot deny the existence of God. There's something in, the, in this specific experience that Laman and Lemuel had that says they cannot deny that God exists. Now, of course, they, they don't fully comprehend who God is, what he's all about, how he functions, 
But the, the critical thing in that verse is they say, how is it possible that the Lord will deliver Laban into our hands? This is the ultimate challenge of faith. Faith will stop with you and your belief in yourself. Because it doesn't do you any good to believe that God exists, just solely that God exists. That obviously wasn't very helpful for Laman and Lemuel. We also can be reminiscent of a verse found in the, the book of James, where it says that the devils know uh, that God exists, and yet they still tremble. There's That knowledge of God's existence is just not sufficient. It wasn't sufficient for Laman and Lemuel. How is it possible that the Lord will deliver Laban into our hands. They doubt that God can work through them, and that's where the faith ends. If you don't believe that God can actually operate and do something through you, then that faith, like everything that you believe, eventually just becomes a wash. If you can't, then everything you believe ultimately becomes nullified. It's quite an interesting thing to consider that all of that grandeur, all of that knowledge that you have. See, you may believe that God is all-powerful. That may be something that's truly in your heart. You've seen an angel and say, God is quite powerful, but you know what? I don't believe that God and all of his grandeur and all of his might, that he can do something with me. Why would we doubt that, though? I believe that in many cases that that doubt is quite self-evident. Because if I'm reading that and trying to apply that into my own life and into the experiences of people that I have encountered, I, I may add to this verse these phrases. How is it possible that the Lord will deliver Laban into my hands, seeing that I am full of doubt, seeing that I am imperfect, seeing that I am a sinner and I am polluted and full of all sorts of problems in my life. That's that self-evident aspect of why individuals may doubt the power of God and his ability to work through you. The greatest challenge of faith is to believe that God will work through you, despite your inadequacies. And this is one of the most common things you're going to recognize in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, at least in the neck of the woods where I'm from. I don't know how things are going in Brazil or Norway or all over the world, but I think it's something that we've done ourselves a disservice within our own language because we always talk about God as the one who, who may put up with our inadequacies, my mistakes. But again, we never focus on the more critical issue. Will God deal with you when you're not making mistakes and when you're not just being inadequate and when you're not just a mortal fool Will he deal with you when you're just outright evil, wicked, sinful, malicious, and malevolent? And that doesn't mean necessarily when you're caught in the act of doing one of those things, but when you recognize that each one of those descriptors at some point has described your state of being. I believe that God will forgive my little itsy-bitsy teeny mistakes. Or do you believe that God will forgive your evil, your sin, your wickedness, that horrible and nasty evil that you have brought into the world. What is God going to do with that? See, that's the trickier question, and that's the question that deserves the majority of our attention. Because if you're unwilling to look at that, then you may end up like Laman and Lemuel, 
who doubt whether God can work through their hands. You see, God is more than willing to work through Laman and Lemuel despite these inadequacies and despite their sins and despite their evil. And that's not just, that's not a, a call to do whatever you want and be as evil and sinful as you can because God will still work through you. But it's this pure recognition that, look, you have some things that are wrong with you. You have these things that you're struggling with. And yes, they are impediments. But if your attitude towards them is humble, if your attitude towards that sin, that evil is penitent, realize that God is powerful and will work with you. And he wants to work with you. And that's another critical thing. When we remember the verses in Romans where it states that God loveth sinners, that Christ died for the ungodly, we can also say that God will manifest his power through the ungodly. God might even possibly deliver Laban into the hands of people who were ungodly. This is extremely critical for us to realize. Now, of course, as I said, this is it, you, one still, I think, needs that fundamental penitent spirit behind that. But even so, there's, there's a tremendous amount within us, these flaws and problems that we're trying to work through, that God is still willing to overlook. God is still going to manifest and show his love as well, and not just his love, but his power. God will still work through these imperfect and that's where, again, I'm, I'm using the harsher language because I believe that we've avoided the harsher language to our own error. So I will say God will work through sinful individuals. God can still use his power. He hasn't, just because you've sinned in some way and have done something that's wicked or evil, doesn't mean God's entirely abandoned you. Yes, you've distanced yourself. And yes, it's going to be difficult. And there's obstacles that you're putting in your own way that may prevent or forestall your deliverance, but God is still willing and wanting to manifest miracles and his power in your own life. And, and, and if you if you are unable to believe in that, then your faith will basically be nullified. It will be dead, just like that faith without works is dead. A faith in God and an ability to describe all the wonders and majesty that is in him without believing that God can do anything in your own world and in your own life and rep have any sort of representation and efficacy in your own experiences is basically useless. Now, I can't help myself, so I have to cut, turn to the book of James because some of these verses are so, so powerful and telling for the principles that we're discussing. So in James chapter 1, verse 22, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Now I hope I'm not being too lenient in my interpretation, but whenever I read that, I like the description of the hearer only is one who looks in a glass or a mirror and looks at his natural face. And then it gives this description, he goeth on his way and forgets what manner of man he was. I don't, I won't pretend to know in full what James was trying to convey with this description. 
but I don't think I err, at least when I teach the principle in this in this way, to say that a hearer is like someone who looks in the mirror and sees their natural face. They just see that plain old person before them. But the doer does not see their natural face. And if not the natural face, then what face are they seeing? The idea for me that I've always assumed is if they're not seeing their natural face, they're probably seeing their spiritual face. They're seeing themselves for who they truly are. The doer is able to do that. And who are you truly? You are a child of God. You are a king or a priest or a king and a priest. Or perhaps you are a queen or a priestess. You are a child of God and if a child, then an heir of God, as it is promised in the scriptures. Laman and Lemuel saw their natural face. That's all they could see. Perhaps that's all they, they were blinded to their spiritual potential. They were blinded perhaps to the good in them, and they were blinded to the workings of God within them. So when Laman and Lemuel say in 1 Nephi 15, 7 through about 9, and they, Laman and Lemuel, said, Behold, we cannot understand the words which our father hath spoken concerning the natural branches of the olive tree. And I, Nephi, said unto them, Have ye inquired of the Lord? And they said unto me, We have not, for the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. They see themselves only as natural people. They're unable to identify their own spiritual potential. Perhaps their sin, perhaps their flaws, and all of this negative stuff is blocking and clouding them from seeing that potential. It blocks them and clouds them from seeing the dealings of God. One of the dealings of God that he works within us is that he will deal with you even though you are a sinner, even though you're imperfect, even though you're fallen, and maybe you've fallen quite far and strayed quite away from the gospel path. God will still work with you. 1 Nephi chapter 10, verses 17 through about 20. I know these are this is a lot of verses, but these are so powerful in describing Nephi's faith and describing Nephi's ability to liken things to himself. You see how he likens this because he's going to share a verse of God being the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says, look, that principle, that is, if it says that that is true, then God can do that through me. If God can do things through Moses, if God can command through Moses that the Red Sea should part, then why not through me? That is just an incredible faith. It's something we should all be aiming for and striving for. And how we get there, in part, is revealed in these verses. I, Nephi, was desirous also that I might see, hear, and know of these things by the power of the Holy Ghost, which is the gift of God, unto all those who diligently seek him, as well as in times of old, as in the time that he should manifest himself unto the children of men. That is that likening the scriptures. He says, look, if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he, what he did in the past, he can do today. What he did for them, God is capable of doing in me. And it's that being able to utter those last phrases, God can do this through me, is the most critical juncture for you. Verse 18, For God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the way is prepared for all men from the foundation of the world, if it so be that they repent and come unto him. For he that diligently seeketh shall find, and the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto them by the power of the Holy Ghost, as in these times, 
as in the times of old, as well as in times of old, as in times to come. Wherefore, the course of the Lord is one eternal round. This understanding is so important. It's so powerful. It's something that I hope we can all eventually work towards getting that written upon our hearts. That as you read these things and hear these stories and testimonies of the past, that you can develop a faith that it's possible for these things to work in your own time. And the whole concept of time there is most specifically and importantly defined as in your own time, meaning your own life, your own world, your own experiences, that God can work within you and your own experiences. It is a life-defining binary for you to determine whether God will have nothing to do with you, whether all these things are just relevant stories for other people, or if they actually have something to do with your own experiences. I truly believe that the things that we learn from the scriptures, that the words of the scriptures can be applied to our own lives. I truly believe that God does work in every one of us. I believe that God will make things known to you, that God will manifest his power through you, and that God of a truth is in you. Have you heard me say before that everything good is in Corinthians? That last statement is the words of the scripture, so you don't have to take my word for it, just like in reading rainbow fashion. 1 Corinthians 14.25, this verse. If you don't know it, learn it, highlight it, mark it, engrave it, get one of those old ancient phylacteries and put it on your head and wear it every day for the rest of your life because it's that important. 1 Corinthians 14.25, it says, that and thus are the secrets of the heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. So look past the natural man. Look past all of that. Look for the Spirit of God. That's that diligently seeketh shall find. If you diligently seek for that light that is in you, the light of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the grace of Christ that has come through his atonement, you will find it. And it's through that light, that manifestation of God in you, that you will begin to see God's ability and power to work through you and make changes in your life and lead you through the promised land. Well, one of the last things I want to share with you is something that I learned recently this last Sunday as I was studying the scriptures in Luke twenty-one nineteen. There is a verse that I think many people are familiar with that states something along the lines of, in patience, possess ye your souls. So I was looking at some alternative translations of this and reviewing some of the Greek, the Greek origins of these words. The word patience in Greek is hupomone. Probably don't say these very right, but the, the word hupo, hupomon, it's very similar to hypo, which means to be like under. And then there is a root word there, mino, which means to remain or endure. So most literally that term means to remain under or endure under. So there is much more of an image of endurance in this idea. So the, the Greek one that I was reading, the Greek translation said, By the patient endurance of you, you will gain the souls of you. Hypomone this idea of patient endurance. It is through patient endurance that you will possess 
the term possess there is kata'o, katam ahi, which means to acquire, win, get, purchase, or buy. Those are other ways that you could describe that idea. So this, it's through patient endurance that you will acquire your soul, the soul of you. It's through patient endurance that you will be able to discover the reality that God is in you. It's through patient endurance, constantly holding fast to that word of God, that you will be led to the promised land. It's through patiently enduring with yourself and your own inadequacies that you will be able to understand that God, too, is willing to be patient with you and endure your inadequacies, that God is willing to work through you despite all of that, despite your mortality, in as much as he can take you and make you something better, in as much as he can take you and bring you to the promised land, God ultimately desires that. So when you're looking at some of the most fundamental things that you need to believe in, there's a verse in Hebrews that says that, that he that cometh to God must first believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that please him. Now I know I'm I know this is not what the verse is trying to convey, but I I believe it's true that God, that as it says that God is a rewarder of them that please him, that it pleases God to reward people, that it pleases God to bring people towards him. Just as we read in the Savior's analogy of the lost sheep, that he has joy over finding that lost sheep, that God's greatest joy is in making your life better. God's greatest joy is in making you like him in redeeming you, in bringing you into this process of perfection. And so it is the hope and prayer of us all that we might discover the reality of ourselves, that we might be able to see ourselves as God sees us, not as the natural man sees us as we would see ourselves in the mirror. And that in doing so, that we can develop a faith that God does love us, that God has a willingness and a desire to work in us, to manifest his hand in our lives, to lead us towards the promised land, which is ultimately a description of eternal life, to lead us back home to him. This I believe and share with you. Amen. Your support for this podcast is greatly appreciated. Thank you. You can support this podcast by purchasing one of my books, The Divine Nature or His Voice, The Teachings of the Old and New Testament. These books can be purchased on Amazon or by visiting my website, www.unfoldingthescriptures.com. Thank you and God bless.